0: join me in prayer. Lord Jesus, we do come to you because you have called us, commanded us, and even quickened us to do so. We thank you for your gracious and sovereign invitation to yourself where we find life that is truly life. In the celebration of giving thanks, we also thank you for your provision and sustaining of us in our daily needs. Help us to never take for granted the spiritual and temporal gifts that you've so blessed us with. As we've professed what we believe about your will being done, we do ask for your help, your work, in the various affairs of our day-to-day lives. Help us to long for and seek after your will more than our own comfort and control. Strengthen us to obey your will even when it is costly. We pray for your will to be done in our nation for our leaders to lead righteously and peacefully, and for us to honor them, even when we find that challenging. We pray for your will to be done in those who are suffering illness and disease, and humbly ask that you would bring healing and strength. To that end, we thank you for tending to Andrew Peru as he is out of critical care, but we pray that you would supernaturally tend to his body and his spirit as he transitions into rehabilitative care. And please renew Steve and Kim and rest and faith in the weeks ahead. When your sovereign will for us means the loss of loved ones, we pray that you would supply comfort and hope. So minister well to Thomas Jacobson and his entire family in the loss of his sister. As the semester draws to a close, we pray for students and for faculty alike that you would grant them perseverance in their studies and in their callings and bless our stewardship of these gifts, and use them to extend your rule and reign in our church and in our community. And as we prepare to come to your word, Spirit, grant us faith to believe that this account is true of you and true for us, so that we would be renewed in our fellowship with you and our conformity to your likeness. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. And the children that are here are dismissed uh, to Children's Church. And hopefully their Children's Church teachers made it here this morning. Uh, we're going to continue um, in the Gospel of John, John chapter 21. Let me just say a couple personal remarks um, with what Boomer announced. Uh, it's just kind of crazy cool and Gracious and sovereign of God that he would bring us back here uh, To minister in a place that has ministered so well to us. I just can't even um, Yeah, just God's cool like that and another thing I would say is just uh, to the session I always like to commend them to you. They they are a gracious uh, And godly bunch of men that seek the Lord's will in the leadership of this church and it means so much To me personally, particularly, you know, this is just an aside, has nothing to do with the sermon, but, you know, every veteran thinks about when he retires and goes back to the civilian way of life, if they wonder if they're tarnished goods or if they have something to offer. And so I just want to say thank you to the session for your grace uh, to me personally in this call and to affirm that. You know, maybe I'm not really tarnished goods and maybe because of God's grace, uh, still have something to offer uh, this wonderful church. So we're gonna be in John chapter 21 uh, and we'll be reading through verses one through 19. Um, Admittedly, I think this is my third time dealing with this text in the year and a half that I've been here. If you were here for VBS, I talked briefly about this text if you uh, were at the Fish Fry, I briefly talked about this text. And so the third time's the charm, I guess. Uh, maybe today I'll get it right. Again, your sa- session is very gracious. Let me uh, talk about this. this is, it's probably one of my top five favorite passages. So we'll, we'll deal with it in, in its entirety. Psalm or uh, John chapter 21 verses 1 through 19. Hear the word of the Lord. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come, have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dare ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. And we all say, the grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Amen. So let me just set this up for you just real briefly. Um just kind of from a literary perspective and context. If you look earlier at the end of John chapter 20, uh, you see some similar wording as we'll see at the end of John chapter 21. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in in this book, but these are written so that you may believe in Christ as the Son of God, and by believing you have life in his name. And then if you go to 21... Verses 24 to 25. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony, that this his testimony is true. So again, similar wording in these two phrases, and then in between them you've got this account of Jesus and Peter. So this would what we would be called, maybe from a literary perspective, it may be in some of the subheadings of your different Bibles, as an epilogue. And an epilogue simply is a a concluding event that has great importance. So if you like Marvel movies, right, you know at the end of the Marvel movie, you've got to go through about the 12 minutes of end credits to get the next scene that sets up Kind of like the next part of the story. And that's what we've got in this text today. We know there's more coming to the story after the resurrection of Jesus. And then just think about this from a a very simple historical context, right? Think about everything that the disciples have been through the past two or three weeks. Seeing their beloved Lord, their beloved friends, their beloved Savior be you know, denied, uh, mocked, tortured, crucified, rise again, come back in their midst. I mean, these guys, they're, they're reeling. Their world has been turned upside down. They are reeling, and they are wondering, what now? What's next? I think they're In what we would call maybe like an in-between phase of life. And let's talk about our context, right? Our context, your context, my context. In the various day-to-day affairs that God puts us in, we're always finding ourselves in some kind of in-between phase of life. Waiting, wondering, God, what are you up to? What's next? I mean, this church has <laughs> been through a lot of transition, have we not, in the past like 18 months, two years, right? Coming out of COVID, beloved pastor retiring, finding a new beloved pastor, switching denominations, getting elders trained. That's a lot of waiting and wondering what's next. That's a lot of transition. But we see this in our professional lives too, right? Like I'm, I'm walking that right now, you know, retiring from Uncle Sam, going into the civilian world. What's next, Lord? What are you doing? What have I been through? Not just professionally, but boy, you moms. I've never been a mom, just for the record, okay? But like you moms are like in between phase life every stinking day, right? In between going from this to that, to this to that. And then your kids hit in between phases of life, and that hits you in different ways because, like, what do they need of me now? And, like, we have them, and then we don't. Like, all our lives are filled up with these in between phases of life, these transitions of wondering, God, what are you doing, and what's next? A leadership consultant by the name of Dr. Ed Brenninger said this about transitions. He says, The transitions of our lives are filled with moments of decision and initiative. The reluctance to take action often is equal to the degree of importance of the situation requiring our action. Often, this reluctance is not about whether we know the right thing to do or not. Frequently, It is about our own confidence to act effectively. And I think the disciples, the disciples are in the midst of a big transition. Maybe there's some reluctance about Jesus. What do we do now? What's next? They need some direction, they need some confidence, they need some assurance. And Jesus shows up. In this epilogue, in this in between time, Jesus shows up. He shows up to reveal, he shows up to restore, and all of those to give them the confidence for their new mission to feed his sheep. So, first, Jesus reveals. The disciples aren't exactly sure. They've had a couple other encounters with the resurrected Jesus, but they're still not sure about what to do next. And Peter says, I'm going fishing. And the other disciples are like, yeah, you shouldn't go alone. We'll go with you. Nothing is bad about Peter deciding to go fishing. We don't know why he decided to go fishing. We don't think it was necessarily like, oh, I'm done with all of this. I'm going to go off and do my own thing. I don't think we find that in the text. Maybe they're hungry. Maybe they're bored. Maybe they just want to fish. And they go fishing. And after a hard and fruitless night of fishing, Jesus shows up on the shore, unbeknownst to them, and he asks him, have you caught anything? They don't know who it is. They simply say, no. He simply says, cast your nets on the other side. And lo and behold, they catch a boatload of fish. It's the Lord, Peter cries after the miraculous catch of 153 fish. This kind of sounds familiar, right? This looks familiar to Peter. We see it in Luke chapter 8. Again, one of Jesus's first miracles where he's calling the disciples to himself in this idea of catching a supernatural amount of fish. But it's so amazing to see Peter's reaction. This post-resurrection encounter versus the first encounter. The first encounter, Peter says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. This encounter, Peter's like, I better get dressed up, go out into the water, and be there in front of Jesus. Because he is amazed That the Lord has showed himself up in this way. John simply records in this passage that we just read two times. Two times. He just puts it simply. And Jesus revealed himself. These resurrection appearances are revelatory acts. These resurrection appearances are revelatory acts. Jesus is revealing something about himself to these disciples. And what he reveals is more than just, hey, fellas, it's all good. I'm alive. He's revealing far more than just that. In this miraculous catch of 153 fish, he's revealing his divine authority. He still possesses that. We see that. But again, He doesn't just reveal His divine authority. He also reveals His regard for the disciples. They'd had a long night fishing, caught nothing, and yet He shows up and regards them by providing this amazing catch of fish. And then not only that, he's already got breakfast on the shore. And we'll talk about that here in a few minutes. But all of this, he's revealing even what we read about in the Old Testament language of our Old Testament reading and found throughout the scriptures. That God prepares a table in the wilderness giving bread and meat to his people. That is Jesus revealing his regard, his attention, his concern for the needs of his people. This shows us some amazing things about Jesus and the way that he reveals himself. First of all, it just shows his sovereignty, right? He chooses. He chooses. His time his way, the place, that's his doing. He sovereignly chooses how he's going to reveal himself and show up in the lives of his disciples. But then it's beautiful. Not just the sovereignty of it, but just the ordinariness of it. Ordinary fishing, ordinary breakfast. Jesus chooses to show up and reveal his authority and his regard. You see, we need those things about Jesus. We need both. Again, if, if, if someone is going to help you, if they have authority but no regard for you, that does you no good. And if they have regard for you, if they think you're, you're special and precious and wonderful and important, but they have no authority, no power to bring to bear to your needs, that does you no good either. But Jesus has infinite authority and infinite regard for his people. And a lot of times, he just shows up in the most ordinary of circumstances. It was kind of in this in-between phase of life. We were moving from Fort Bragg uh, back to Lawrence uh, last summer, and we've been at Fort Bragg. Fort Bragg is like the center of the universe, like everything operationally happens there, and it rode us hard. I mean, we were just, just, the military, family, you name it, a lot of things were thrown to us in those five years. And I was like, man, I, I got to do something. You know, I, I'm, I'm coming in tired and wore out. So I find this little, there's this thing called the White House Retreat Center. It's a Jesuit retreat center on the bluffs of uh, the Missouri River, right across from St. Louis. I was like, well, let me do this. It's this weird kind of retreat. They call it a silent retreat. So no talking, which that in and of itself is going to be a problem for a preacher, Right. So I show up to this thing and, uh, you know, it's dinner the first night. And you can talk at the first dinner. So, you know, I'm in preacher mode. Like I'm talking with these other pastors, getting to know them, these other brothers. And then like after dinner, no more talking. And we go to our first session and the guy's teaching from this passage. Again, one of my top five favorite passages in scripture. No talking. We go to breakfast the next morning. No talking, right? So we're talking, we're eating an ordinary breakfast. Scrambled eggs, bacon, whatever. And then in the background, (laughs) in the background, they've got casting crowns, oh my soul. I won't sing that song to you because I'd butcher it. And I find myself weeping in my eggs. Because Jesus just showed up in this ordinary breakfast, in this ordinary retreat. Revealing, if, if you know that song, it's basically God saying, I'm God and I got you. And that's what Jesus does in this encounter. A time of his own choosing in the most ordinary events. He wants to reveal something to his disciples. He's still got all the authority and he's still got all the regard. I don't know if this passage hits you like it hits me. Think about it. Think about it. He'd just been through the cross. Torture. The, The physical agony. The spiritual agony of bearing the curse of my sin, your sin. He bore it all. And he rose again and And he still got it all. He still has all of the authority. He still has all of the regard. There was no degradation in who Jesus is. In the fullness of who he is. And think about it. Think about it. Your sin. It cost Jesus dearly. But it didn't contaminate him. He's still Jesus with all of the holiness, all of the sovereignty, all of the authority and all of the regard. And why I think that's so important is because sometimes in our own sin, we think we're we're hesitant, we're reluctant to go to Jesus because of the shame of that sin. And we think somehow it will will contaminate him. But him bearing that, he, he, he didn't lose any of who he is. He still possessed the fullness of who he is. And he reveals that. He doesn't only just reveal in this passage. We also see that in this resurrection appearance, in the midst of the transition, Jesus not only reveals, but he restores. Now, all the nutritionists, dietitians. Uh, athletic performance coaches coaches would tell you that breakfast is the most important meal of the day, right? Wheaties would tell you that. The General Mills would for sure tell you that, right? But it is, right? If you look at all the research, right, it helps our uh, mood. It helps our memory. It helps our concentration. That's why we call it breakfast. You break the fast, right? Metabolism, energy. Breakfast is a restorative meal, and that's what Jesus says Come. Have breakfast. Come have breakfast. But he's going to do more than just restore metabolism, concentration, memory. He's going to restore so much more in Peter. How does he go about that? He goes about it compassionately, does he not? I mean, just the invitation. Just the invitation. Come, have breakfast with me. We're going to talk about some things, Peter. Peter. But before we talk, let's just have some fellowship. Let's just have a meal together. And then, so he connects before he corrects. He also, did you notice it? There's a pattern in Jesus when he's interacting with the disciples. He always asks a question and then he instructs. He inquires, then he instructs. Did you catch any fish? No. Cast your net to the other side. Simon, son of John, do you love me? He inquires, then he instructs. That's compassion, right? Jesus isn't browbeating Peter. Probably should inform our parenting, both of those techniques. Connecting before correcting, inquiring before instructing. Um, I say that for my benefit, because I need to remind myself of those things. But the other thing, even though he's compassionately um, addressing Peter, he, he's not going to gloss over what's happened. <laughs> That's why he asks three different times, right? He's reminding Peter of his overconfident ass- assertion when Peter said, all of these may deny you, but not I. Three times he asks. In order for Peter To experience the fullness of Jesus' ability to restore him, he also must experience the fullness of his failure. And that's still Jesus compassionately dealing with that. He's not sweeping it under the rug. He's not glossing it over. It's not, ah, no big deal. He's addressing it. But what is it? What is it that Jesus actually restores? Well, first of all, he restores Peter's relationship with Jesus himself. That's the come have breakfast with me. And then it's amazing, right? He doesn't even, I mean, I hope you saw that, right? He doesn't even need the fish that he helped them catch. That's how much he's wanting to restore this relationship with Peter. He's already put the meal together. Interesting, there's a charcoal fire Noticed, You know, the other time that John mentions a charcoal fire is when Peter is at the uh, fire, the charcoal fire warming his hands right about before he's going to deny Jesus. Jesus is like, I got a different kind of charcoal fire. I want to restore our relationship. I want you to know that Peter, although you denied me, I'm still yours. You're still mine. Your failure doesn't change that. But Jesus also wants to restore Peter's public standing with the other disciples. Right? I mean the other disciples are there. The other disciples see this and Jesus knows that the church is going to need Peter and Peter is going to need these brothers as well. But will these other brothers trust him if, if they also know of his denial? And so Jesus restores his public standing before the other disciples. That's well, we'll get to that here in a second. Jesus restores Peter's identity, right? Peter's like, I'm going fishing. <laughs> Peter's, Jesus shows up while he's fishing and tells him, feed my sheep, reminding him, like, the work that I'm doing, I'm still at work doing that work. You are a fisher of men. That's your identity. And he's restoring that. And moreover, he's restoring Peter in his mission when he says, follow me, and speaking of the death in which he will glorify God. You see, brothers and sisters, I hope you see this, right? It's one thing for Jesus to tell Peter, come have breakfast with me. I'm going to have the breakfast. That's compassionate. That's restorative of their relationship. But his restoration is far more than that. He's restoring him to the purpose for which he called him to. He's saying to Peter, you're not tarnished goods. I'm still going to use you to accomplish my, the building of my church. I mean, it'd be one thing, again, a, a football player muffs a punt, right? And the coach is like, hey, it's all good. And like, our relationship is good. But you're really staying on the sidelines for the rest of the season. Because I don't know if I can trust you. I don't know. You're a liability. And and Jesus is like Peter. Even in your failure. I'm going to finish my work in you. You are not a liability. To my church. And to my purposes for you. How can Jesus. We looked at how Jesus does restore. How can Jesus restore. Jesus can restore us. Because he himself is restored. The Apostle Paul reminds us of this in Romans chapter 6. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like this, like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. You see, you can be restored because Christ is restored. Christ's resurrection, Christ's restoration is your resurrection and your restoration. Yes, Peter and the, the spirit was willing and the flesh was weak in the time of testing and temptation. But Jesus had interceded for Peter and not just interceded in praying for him. He'd intervened. He'd intervened with his own precious blood and with his resurrection. You know, some might call this really not just a restoration, but a reinstatement. It's a reinstatement of Peter. The action of giving a person back the position in which they've lost. And so when Abraham Lincoln was always asked about, well, what would it look like to restore the South after the war? He would speak about it in this way, that God doesn't hold our sins against us, nor does he act like forgiveness is a favor to us, even though it is. And so when he was asked about how he would treat the rebellious southerners when they were defeated, he said, I will treat them as if they'd never been away. And that's indeed how Peter is treated by Jesus in this revelation and in this revelation restoration. So I tell you, what does this mean for you? Brothers and sisters, whatever disobedience, whatever denial is in your Christian walk, those do not define you. There's more to you than your failures because of how Jesus reveals and restores in his crucifixion and his resurrection. As I was closing out my time at Fort Leavenworth, I occasionally got to minister in the prison with some men who are just clinging, clinging to the gospel. And that same lesson for them is a lesson for us. It's a little more poignant for them. Don't let these brown uniforms, don't let these jail cells, Don't let this separation from society rightfully deserved, but don't let those things define you because of Christ. Because of Christ and his ability to restore us. And it's a lot of times in the midst of those in-between phases of life when we're stuck in the kind of right now and wondering what's next and we look back. And we see all of the missed opportunities. We see all of the things that we've blown. And we wonder, am I really ready for what's next? And we begin to despair and get discouraged. And Jesus would say, those don't define you. I'm not done with you. I, who began a good work in you, will bring that work to completion. This work that Peter is called to is the third and final point that he is called. This isn't just done for Peter's assurance. This isn't just done to ease Peter's guilty conscience. This is done with a particular end in mind that Peter would indeed be used to feed and nurture and grow the church. Jesus asks, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Again, our love for Jesus is seen in our love, in our regard, in our nurturing of the sheep. It's interesting when Jesus speaks of himself as the shepherd who will separate the sheep and the goats, he points to what, what he's looking for. The distinguishing characteristics is, did you nurture the least of these? Did you have a regard for the least of these as I have had a regard for you? And so first, this is a command, <laughs> feed my sheep. Do you love me? If you love me, feed, it's not, it, it's not optional. It's not a suggestion. What's required of Peter is required of us. Second of all, it's his sheep. They're not our sheep. If you're teaching here in the church, if you're ministering outside of the church, People are not your projects. They're Christ's sheep. Your kids are his sheep, not yours. Feed them, nurture them in the words of Jesus. We are under shepherds, pointing them to the words of the good shepherd. And then again, remembering that this is all rooted in love. (laughs) You're, You're teaching, you're instructing, Is not for you to highlight your spiritual gifts, your spiritual maturity. It's all to be done for the love of Christ and for the love of his sheep and for the love of his church. And so, regardless of whether you're in a transition or not, I think a question that we should ask is are we consumers or are we feeders? And we are called to consume, but we are also called to feed. Brothers and sisters, this is an amazing count, this epilogue. Imagine, imagine if this account never happened. (laughs) But we know that it did. And we know that in Acts chapter 2, Peter put feet to this, right? He preaches his first sermon, obviously empowered by the Holy Spirit. 3,000 people come to faith in Jesus Christ. But think about how much this encounter with Jesus inflamed his passion to nurture and feed the church. Yes, Peter screwed up colossally, royally, but Jesus isn't done with him. Your failures don't diminish Jesus' ability to use you for his glory and his purposes. Not your failures, not your weak faith. He can still use you. And the extent to which you take hold of Jesus revealing himself and restoring you in your relationship with you and restoring you in mission and in purpose, even amidst your failures, will reflect the extent to which you spend your life feeding the sheep. The one who tells Peter, come have breakfast with me, also tells Peter to feed my sheep. May our lives be formed by similar encounters, Jesus revealing, restoring, and using us for his glory as we spend our lives nurturing and feeding for his glory. It's right here in this table that we see that this is a different but still a revelatory act, because here we see Jesus revealing his authority— Right? We remember Jesus said, no one takes my life from me, but I have authority to lay it down. But we also see Jesus and his regard for us because we remember that these elements remind us that this was done for you. Out of his regard for you, even amidst your failings, even amidst your weaknesses, even amidst your disobedience. But we also believe that this table is a table that restores. It points to the authority and the regard of Jesus, but it also restores us. It nourishes us spiritually so that, we might be, so that we might go about the business of the church, which is feeding his sheep. And so it was on that dark and dreadful night in which Jesus was with his disciples in the upper room that he took the bread and he blessed it. And he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. And then in similar fashion, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the covenant of my blood, which is shed for the forgiveness of sins. Brothers and sisters, this is not the table of grace PCA. This is Christ's table. And he invites all of those, all of those who recognize that yes, Christ has bore my sin and I have looked to him in faith and repentance, turning from my sin and turning to faith in Christ, turning in what he did for me that I couldn't do for myself to come and feed upon this. Maybe you've denied Jesus this week. Maybe you've been disobedient this week. And Jesus would tell you, the same thing he would tell Peter come, come, come eat, come, let me restore my intimate communion and fellowship with you, come, let me nourish you and restore you in the purposes that I have for you. If you're here today and you don't know that you've offended a holy God, you haven't placed your faith in Christ, you haven't trusted in Christ and turned to Christ, we would encourage you not to come. Not to think less of you, not to make you feel awkward, but simply just be true to where you are in your own relationship with Christ. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful for this written account of your revealing and your restoring Peter. And that gives us such hope, such assurance, such encouragement that you are not done with us yet. That you like you did with Peter, long to do with us. You long to reveal your authority, your regard. You long to restore us in our intimate fellowship with you. You long to restore us in the purposes that you have for us. And so as we come to this table, we pray that your spirit would be pleased to comfort us, to assure us. But Father, we pray that as we are those who are fed in your grace, that we would long to live lives to feed and nurture others in the same gospel of grace. And we pray this all in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.